Law enforcement suicides are at an all-time high right now. One of the causes is poor leadership within the law enforcement profession. Nick, the host of the Roll Call Room podcast, has written a book, Police Mental Barricade, A Survivor's Guide to Poor Law Enforcement Leadership. This book is a raw and powerful look into suicide and how poor leadership decisions contribute to law enforcement suicides. Buy the book now at mentalhealthbarricade.com and stop the stigma. not the things we do in life that we regret on our deathbed, it is the things we do not. We don't beat the reaper by living longer. We beat the reaper by living well and living fully. For the reaper will come for all of us. The question is, what do we do between the time we're born and the time he shows up? You can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever, because believing that the dots will connect down the road will give you the confidence to follow your heart even when it leads you off the well-worn path, and that will make all the difference. And you will need to find your passion. Many of you have already done it. Many of you will later. Many of you may take till your 30s or 40s, but don't give up on finding it, right? Because then all you're doing is waiting for the reaper. Sometimes life's gonna hit you in the head with a brick. Don't lose faith. I'm convinced that the only thing that kept me going was that I loved what I did. You've got to find what you love. And that is as true for work as it is for your lovers. Your work is gonna fill a large part of your life. And the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking and don't settle. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know when you find it. And like any great relationship, it just gets better and better as the years roll on. So keep looking. Don't settle. Find your passion and follow it. And if there is anything I have learned in my life, you will not find that passion in things. And you will not find that passion in money. Because the more things and the more money you have, the more you will just look around and use that as the metric. And there will always be someone with more. For the past 33 years, I've looked in the mirror every morning and asked myself, if today were the last day of my life, would I wanna do what I am about to do today? And whenever the answer has been no for too many days in a row, I know I need to change something. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. 
Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. No one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet, death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that is as it should be, because death is very likely the single best invention of life. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. Because when he shows up, it's too late to do all the things that you're always going to kind of get around to. Stay hungry, stay foolish. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a Roll Call Room episode. My name is Nick, and I am your host for this episode. Mike is not going to be with us tonight. He is working. Uh, so, very special episode today. We have Dr. Ellen Kirchman coming on, uh, the author of I Love a Cop. So, before I continue, if you're in law enforcement and you have a spouse or a significant other or you have family or you're in the academy, I want you to go on to Amazon. And I want you to buy this book for whoever your loved one is, and they will thank you in the future. And the reason why I tell you that is, is that when I first started in law enforcement, I purchased this book. Uh, help my family tremendously about the ups and downs and everything that you're going to go through. Uh, and believe me when I tell you it's extremely accurate. Dr. Uh, Kirchman is extremely good. Uh, she's got a couple books out, and she also does a uh, blog. So with that being said, I would strongly urge you to or encourage you to have a family member listen to this episode because it is full of some fantastic information from Dr. Kirschman. And that's the reason why I wanted to have her on the show was for spouses. And this show is 100% family friendly. So this is non-explicit. Uh, so you can listen to it in the car with the kids screaming in the background and throwing stuff around, or you can play it in the house, uh, while you're feeding the kids or, um, something like that. So I strongly encourage you to listen very closely to what Ellen has to say. And again, I strongly encourage you to go and buy the book. Um, you can get it on Amazon. You can also go uh, on the descriptions of the episode, uh, in the description of this episode, you can click on the Amazon link to the book. Uh, you will thank me later. Trust me when I tell you that. Uh, so that 
is the intro and um you folks enjoy her interview as much as i enjoyed interviewing her take good care of each other and i will catch you on the next episode hey folks nick from the roll call room podcast Hey, I wanted to tell you about a realtor in the Northern Virginia and Central Virginia area, uh, Michelle Merritt. Uh, She is a brand new sponsor to our show, and uh, we wanted to plug her. Uh, Michelle? Yes. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And welcome as a sponsor. Uh, You can find Michelle at www.soldwithmerit. That's M-E-R-R-I-T-T.com. If you're looking for any uh, realtor services within the Northern Virginia, Central Virginia area and anything special you want to tell the uh, fans. Uh, Absolutely. So I'm a retired police officer and uh, I guess cop's wife, though I don't like to claim that title as much because I'm still blue blood myself. Um, And if you're a first responder or a listener to this podcast, I'm now offering a $500 credit for a home inspection. And also a credit if you're listing um, your home as well. All right, folks. Again, that's uh, Sold with Merit. Uh, sold with Merit, M E R R I T T dot com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in and coming back from break. I am super excited. Uh, I've been looking forward to this guest for quite a long time. Uh, I have the one and only Dr. Ellen Kirchman uh, with us, the author of I Love a Cop. Ellen, how are you? Dr. Ellen Kirchman, how are you? I'm doing really well. Glad to be here, Nick. Well, you know, um, I discovered this book back when I was in the police academy back in 2006, I want to say. And it was um, told to me by academy instructor uh, for... Uh, spouses to read this book and really get a good idea of what was about to occur. Um, kind of like the book, what to expect when expecting. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, I read it too, because I kind of wanted to know what I was, what I was going to go through, like as a new officer. And I have to say you're, you're, you're spot on with, from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, the mounds of emotions and the amounts of changes that go on uh, from the time that you get hired to the time you go to the academy to the time that you're a veteran officer. Um, What made you want to uh, write this book? Well, I was seeing uh, spouses, and at the time, I think I was still a social worker before I became, no, then I became a psychologist, right? And then I was working uh, with various agencies because we weren't really paying any attention to how this job spills over to the family. So I would be get called in to do a workshop or talk to spouses. And it was just clear to me how much this job affects and often damages family life. And I realized that cops get trained all the time about everything, but their spouses and their family members, their kids, their significant others are like unpaid assistants to yeah. the police department. They're the ones that have to deal with um, a, an officer who's having nightmares, who his personality is changing, and they had nowhere to turn, and they didn't know what to do. They're not trained mental health people, and I could clearly see the need. So 
um, I just I just had a lot of pressure inside my head and said, you've got to put this down in a book so that people have something to refer to. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that we always say on the show is, is our family is on for the ride along, but they don't get the training for the ride along. And, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, and, and I can, I can attest to that because, um, you know, your book, uh, let me back up. So, uh, when I was a sergeant, I was a sergeant for seven years in my agency and I would really push for rookies fresh out of field training that were married or that were dating somebody to go and buy this book. Um, I've pushed this book so many times on this show um, and I get a lot of emails from spouses and significant others saying, you know, how do I, how do I deal with some of the stuff that I'm seeing? And I always push the book because it really, um, you really start at the academy and then you work your way like all the way to mid career, uh, with the mm-hmm. book, which is amazing. Um, you know, one thing in particular, um, you know, you you put in the book about coming off of um, uh, coming off of probation, and um, one of the p- most profound things about is settling down, uh, surviving your rookie years. Uh, and I'm reading this off of page fifty one of the book, folks. So when you go out and buy it, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, your officer is conf- uh, competent and confident in his or her street skills. This job is still interesting, but the novelty has started to wear thin and some of the thrill is gone. With what you're seeing right now in the current climate in law enforcement, this is, I would imagine that this is more prevalent. I would imagine. Yes. Hello. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Okay. Okay. I didn't hear the last of what uh, the question you were asking me, though. So with, with the current climate going on right now in law enforcement, can you, uh, what are some of the things that the spouses should be looking for with officers returning home from protests and, and, and doing, you know, what we see in the current climate? Well, I just got, a, I get lots of emails from spouses asking, you know, using the subject line that says help. Uh, with an exclamation mark. And so I got one recently asking just exactly that same question because cops are feeling demoralized. They're feeling betrayed by the communities that they have worked hard to serve. Um, they're feeling frightened. Mm-hmm. Uh, two things. I mean, the pandemic, the viral pandemic, and then there's all of this anti-police sentiment that's floating around. Um, and I think that the that they may be very agitated when they come home and angry. And it's best to not push for anything, but maybe give them some space, some um, try to help them maybe get out and do some exercise if they can to spill off some of the adrenaline. Um, Not to push to talk unless they want to talk, but make sure they know that you are, as a family member, you're there to listen. Um, the, the person who wrote to me described that her husband was just had a totally short fuse. Something went wrong. The dog barked when it shouldn't have, and he would just um, fly off the handle. Yeah. I think this is because of the adrenaline overload that everybody has. And in large part, it is physiological as much as it can be psychological. 
And so I, I was suggesting uh, create as much of a calm atmosphere as you can um, and just try to, um, you know, distractions are not a bad thing. Sometimes mm -hmm. it gets a bad rap. But I would say don't watch the news. Don't read the newspapers. For heaven's sakes, don't read the blogs. Try to do something that is more positive, uh, more lighthearted, more uh, distracting, um, something that can really um, take your concentration and pull you away from the things that are going on during your shift. Something like, I don't know, for me, that would be reading a good book or I like um, puzzles, jigsaw puzzles. I can get totally lost in a jigsaw puzzle. I can get lost while I'm cooking. Just find the things that your loved one can get lost doing and try to encourage them to spend some time in that and just, you know, really shift gears away from what's going on in the world to making home for at least temporarily a bit of a sanctuary. Yeah, I think I think one of the major things for uh, spouses is that they they um, they push for uh, for their law enforcement spouse to talk. Why won't mm -hmm. you talk to me? Why, you know, you come home, you don't want to tell me anything. And I don't think right. a lot of the spouses know the more pushing you do, the more pushing away that that spouse in law enforcement does. That's um, right. It's not because they don't want to talk about it. It's just they're living it for 12, 13 hours in a shift and then they come home. They just right. want to decompress. They yeah, they need yeah. a break. Um, they do need a break. So it's important then for spouses and family members and significant others not to take these things personally mm -hmm. but to uh they're not that your officer is not rejecting you uh nine out of ten times it may have been a bad relationship before all of this started but um so not to take it personally and to understand the physiology of of being exposed to so much stress and pressure You've got all these stress chemicals running around in your body, and it's really hard to wind that down unless you are focused on actually actively trying to wind it down. So to understand that the snappiness, the irritation, is is the person still on their um, on their they're amped up on all of these stress chemicals. Right. Um, so let's let's shift gears for a minute. We've got. We've got a pretty big epidemic going on right now with law enforcement suicides. Uh, last year was the highest. Um, you know, we're at 80 right now for the year. Um, Bluehelp.org does a really good job, um, you know, collecting the data and, and, and really um, keeping up uh, us up to date. I mean, your feelings, are we going to see an uptick in law enforcement suicides this year because of the anti-cop movement, because of the, you know, the pandemic and all that other, the, all that other things that are going on right now? Well, you're asking me to predict the future, which is something I really, of course, can't. <laughs> yeah, do, yeah, I true. Could, but I can't. But, you know, the, I, I would say this, that because the of all the stress and pressure and the anti-police feelings and the things you and I were just talking about, this strains relationships yeah. at home. And we know that one of the leading factors, if not the leading factor in police suicide is the loss of a relationship. 
so if what's going on in the world now uh, strains relationships to the point of breaking, then we probably are going to see more suicides. On the other hand, we're a lot more alert to this, and hopefully um, people are not going to get caught up in stigma and that if they have a colleague or coworker that they can see circling the drain psychologically, they'll do something about it. They will actively intervene with that person and ask them a direct question. Are you thinking of killing yourself? You, you know, you're drinking more. You're more isolated. You've changed your personality. Uh, um, you look um, uh, sleep-deprived. That's, that's the other thing that I think is going to go on because people are working a lot of yeah. uh, overtime. So, uh, I mean, there are a whole lot of factors that could lead to having more suicides, and I'm, I'm just hoping that's not the case. Yeah, and I agree with you, which is I think now more than ever, I think we're breaking down the stigma. We're, we're, we're publicly giving more uh, resources for officers. I almost want to say that 2020 is the year to, to say that you're not okay when you're not okay. Um, mm-hmm. I think with the year that we had last year of law enforcement suicides, I think a lot of officers, specifically the younger officers, are more, um, they're more honest with themselves. They're coming forward. They're saying, hey, listen, I'm something's just not right. I don't know what it is, but something's not right. Um, I think our millennial generation that's coming into law enforcement is very, very heavily into mental health, which is good for our profession. Very, very good. Excellent. It's excellent. And, and one of the things that I would say, in you've got to start from day one in the academy, as you said earlier, to get officers to have be conscious about their own mental health and take responsibility for their own mental health and know some of the signs and symptoms of what's going on and predict for them how they're going to feel. Mm-hmm. However... I think it's really important to keep repeating that message and that training about every other year because, as I'm sure you know as well as anybody, folks in the academy, are they're, they're invincible. They think, oh, that's not going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of like trying to do premarital counseling with two people who are desperately in love with each other. They're just not going to hear it. Yeah. They, don't have any, they don't have any Velcro for it. They don't have any experience on the road. Um, where they can sort of relate to some of the things that they may be hearing. So I think if you keep doing that every other year, that's going to help. And it's not just the young people. It's going to catch the veterans yes. who have got 15 years' worth of critical incidents uh, piled up somewhere in the back of their minds and that they're not talking to anybody about. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where the real stigma comes from is, is our, our veterans that are on. Um, I mean, I didn't talk about any of my stuff until I hit my 14, 15-year mark. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just builds and builds. And one of the things that I had suggested to my former agency was is that when we put these recruits into the academy, we should be holding a class for their loved ones, a what-to-expect class. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they come in. One night, it's a couple of hours, your book that your book is actually what I mentioned to my command staff and said, you know, go through this book, 
bring out some some powerful points in here and prepare these family members for what's about to occur. And a lot of these agencies are reluctant to do that because they don't want to scare the families to turn around and go to the loved one that's in the academy and go, you got to get out. Like, mm-hmm. that scared me. Like, I don't want you doing that. And recruitment's at an all-time low with law enforcement. So that was the obstacle that we faced, well, that I faced when I tried to introduce it into my agency. So I can only imagine across the United States how it would be perceived. Mm-hmm. But I definitely think we need to do a, a way better job of preparing the families um, that are that are on for the ride along, you know, like like what we said before. Well, I think the same the same message. I'm glad to hear that, and I'm sorry that you that you endorsed that, and I'm sorry you didn't get a better response. But we do need orientations mm-hmm. for families, and then they need to have some kind of an ongoing um, uh, resource for families. And one of the things that um, organizations that have done this kind of orientation, they give out like a book bag that's got my book in it and it has the um, all the insurance information, it has the name of the chaplain, the EAP, um, who to contact and peer support. Um, and then maybe there's a sign up so that the new the families of the new officers, including parents, you know, Sometimes officers are so young that they're not yet married. So yeah. who shows up at the orientation? There's their mother and father. Yep. So the people have a way of knowing who to call if they do need help or they can network with each other. And, you know, the idea that it's going to scare um, families so much that they're going to ask their officers to, uh, to quit is, um, I think it's an unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. If it does, that person probably should not be in policing anyhow. Yes. Um, uh, some of those officers are going to get kicked out of the program in field training. So <laughs> you, they're going to lose some no matter what. And it's rather insulting, I think, yeah. to think that you that the kind of training you give officers, that training family members is, is going to result in something that's damaging as opposed to preparing them. Yeah. Preparedness is a really important part of officer safety. Why isn't it similar? I know I'm preaching to the choir talking to you, but the, why isn't it the same to prepare families? And one of the things I really like to do that I think is most successful in those orientations is to, because um, they need to hear what's going to be like living with somebody in the field training program, which yeah. is highly stressful. I like to have a panel, and on the panel of spouses or, or family members, I like to have somebody that's just, whose um, loved one has just finished, uh, like, the field training program or probation, and then um, all the way up through some veteran spouses who have been around for 20 years, and have them talk about their own experiences, because it has so much more weight coming from someone who's lived through this. Yeah. Yeah. Field training is probably one of the most stressful things in in your job early on, and you uh, you change very you change very quickly off duty while you're in field training. And I don't think a lot of family members know how quickly you change because that change from civilian life to mm-hmm. law enforcement life mm-hmm. it's abrupt. Because in the academy, you're in a sterile environment, so you know you have role players. 
and you don't get hurt. You know, there's no chance of you really getting hurt uh, because it's it's all a controlled environment. But when you get out in the real world, day one of field training, mm-hmm. I mean, I was a field trainer for four, almost five years. And first day on the job, I would tell rookies, I would say, listen, this is life or death out here. This is not role playing. This is not a game. Watch mm-hmm. people's hands. Don't trust anybody that says anything to you. Uh, you don't know anybody out here. And it's a shell shock because when you're, you know, when you're a civilian, you're like, oh, nobody's ever going to hurt me. And then you get on right. the job and and you see how things are, especially when everybody else is in bed and it's two, three o'clock in the morning and you're out there playing cops and robbers. It's a big eye opening experience. Um, and then you go home and your family wants to go out like to a restaurant or grocery shopping and you have to reprogram your brain to not be on high alert all the time. Um, so I agree with you a hundred percent. So Nick, there's a lot of talk about, uh, police reform right now. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it says that that kind of message, everybody you meet is going to want to kill you Mm -hmm. is part of the problem that we are seeing with policing now. How are you reacting to uh, the calls for reform that and are, uh, and I actually mentioned this in my Psychology Today blog, mm-hmm. that ha- how do we train people to stay safe without making them afraid of the people in their community? Well, I, uh, it's, that's, it's a very good question because police reform is definitely needed but I think it's needed in areas where the people who are asking for the reform uh, are missing the mark. Where the reform needs to be, in, I mean, this is solely my opinion, uh, and this is coming from being in the profession for quite a long time, is the reform needs to happen at the top of each law enforcement agency, which is the leadership. Because the leadership drives the message, the mission uh, for each agency. If the leadership um, that they that you have in your police agency is focused on mental health, if it's focused on community policing, if, if it's focused on true partnership with the community and drives the point home, then your troops are going to follow right behind. But what we see is, is we see a lot of old school police tactics still being utilized in these agencies because our command staff is still from the old school way of thinking. And so, and and I don't want to blame it all on the leadership. There are, there are a very, very few selected bad apples in the profession and nobody hates bad cops as much as, you know, as good cops. Right. And I don't want to work next to somebody that's a bad cop. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think police reform, defunding the police, I think is the worst thing that you can do because most of them are underfunded. Um, it's huge, right? Um, salaries for law enforcement are atrocious. They're, they're, they're terrible. Pensions are dwindling down to almost nothing where it doesn't even, I remember when I was a kid getting into law enforcement, you got into the fire department, the police department or sanitation because they had good benefits and good uh, pension. You get pension for life. Now that's not the case in law enforcement. Now it's to the point where you're you you literally have to work until you're 55, 60 years old for you to be able to even survive when you retire because medical costs are so astronomical. Um, 
but the reform needs to happen. I think uh, the mental health piece, uh, the community policing piece, and that's hard. That's hard getting officers, old school officers, to buy into community policing. Very, very difficult thing. Well, my experience is that the folks right at the top, the chiefs, mm-hmm. um, will buy into that, and there'll be all these slogans and <laughs> and uh, posters on the wall. Yeah. But there's no there's no real uh, substance either behind it, or they can't sell it to the troops. Oh, talk, I, uh, I, you don't know how then, much that warms my heart to hear it coming from you. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> because it's so true. It's so true because. They they do these posters up, they, they do these emails, and it's all a checkoff. It's all a checkoff, Mark. Or it's mm-hmm. it's it's the word of the day or whatever spicy. You know, it's it's yeah. community policing is the greatest. But are you mm-hmm. are you practicing what you're preaching? You know Yeah, and what is it what does it actually mean? And the same thing, I'm so, I'm sorry to say it happens with the mental health. Yes. Um well okay, we, we give them two hours of stress management in the academy and that's it. No. You know, so but we we can check that off our list. In the, along the lines of what you just said, I was talking to somebody I know is a retired cop, went all the way up into management, and he, this person he has two uh, grown sons who are both police officers in an urban uh, department, and he said what scared him to death was that their their patrol, the 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 street cops, was that their lieutenant would tell them go in and make a sweep of this particular block or neighborhood, and there would be a lot of trouble as a result of that and maybe even some violence, and then the lieutenant would have disappeared. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's rampant. That's Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Doc, I got to tell you, it's, you know, leadership right now, I talk about it, my, fa- my fans uh, probably get tired of it, which is, is that, you know, we need right now in law enforcement, we need strong, strong leadership right now. We need wartime leaders um, to come up from the bottom, veteran officers to finally step up and start taking promotional processes and start changing the culture and changing the command staff. Because a lot of the things that wind up happening that wind up being on the news is exactly what you said. Lieutenant comes into roll call and they go, hey, District B is experiencing a lot of open containers and drunk people walking around. I want you to go in there and I, n- no holds barred. No, nobody gets a break. You go in there, you write everybody. And then you do, you get your marching orders. You go out there, you go to arrest that one person for drunk in public and a melee takes off. And it's like Brown Door Friday. You know, like all the doors at headquarters are closed because all the commanders are like, I don't want to be a part of this. And that's just that's just poor leadership. That's just, you know, and then it attributes to mental health issues because then officers know that their command staff above them don't have their back. And then they're defeated. They're like, I took this job to be proactive and to keep the community safe, but I can't do it because I'm constantly worried I'm going to get in trouble or I'm going to get. I'm going to get fired. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I talked about Minnesota, what happened in Minnesota. You know, you saw what happened with that. Mm -hmm. You know, with all that stuff out there, with that, with that gentleman that, that died, he didn't need to die. And where was the command staff? Where was the supervisors on scene? There was nobody there. 
Um, and that's a big, big problem. That's a huge, huge problem right now in our profession. Um, well, and one of the things I say in my Psychology Today blog is that I think we really have to find a different way to measure police productivity. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't want cops sleeping under bridges. I don't know if they do that. But, um, but if arrest statistics and traffic stops are the only way that you measure anybody's productivity, then you're going to get uh, a different kind of policing than if we could figure out a way to um, measure uh, how uh, officers interact with their communities or prevent crime. I mean, you can't prove a negative, of course. So if there's no crime in somebody's district, is that because the officer's been working his or her tail off mm-hmm. for that? Or did the crime move someplace else? Right. You know, we don't, it's really tough. But constantly getting hash marks, uh, going after hash marks on your stats, because that's what's going to make your sergeant happy at the end of the month is clearly something I would like to see changed. Yeah. All right, uh, Doc, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come right back. Hey, folks, I'm so excited about this brand-new sponsor, Ferocious Beard Company. This company is fantastic. They have a lot of great assortments of beard wax, wash, and oils. They've got apparel, They've got soaps. They've got a whole bunch of different things. Go to ferociousbeard.com. Use promo code ROLLCALLROOM and you get 20% off. I absolutely love their products. Telling you, I've used a lot of different beard products. Mike and I have been searching for a beard company for a long time as a sponsor. And we finally found the best company out there, which is Ferocious Beard Company. And they're out of uh, Fort Worth, Texas. Okay. Go on ferociousbeard.com, use promo code ROLLCALLROOM, and you get 20% off. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming back from break. Uh, Still with me is Dr. Ellen Kirchman, the author of I Love a Cop. Um, And um, we were talking so much in between break uh, about a lot of different things. Uh, But just before we went on break, we started to talk about uh, police reform. Um, one of the things that I thought of, uh, doctor, when you said that was, what are your feelings on yearly PTSD screening for law enforcement? So I I can't remember if I mentioned, I have a blog up on psychology today online. So your readers can read nine different things I think we need to do in terms of police reform. And one of those is this annual mental health screening. Hmm. When that first came out, the idea for that, I thought, oh, that'll never happen. We can't make this happen. Uh, Cops won't trust it. And over the years since the idea has been floating around, apparently um, I was wrong. Apparently cops are, uh, some cops, of course, are okay with this. It has to absolutely be two things. One is it has to be confidential. Amen. This is not fitness for duty. This is not anything. And um, it is only for, it's like going to the dentist, you know, making sure you don't have any cavities. It's a a chance to be honest with yourself about the kind of weight that you're accumulating from the um, things you've been exposed to, because you get exposed to traumatic events all, uh, you know, throughout your 
throughout the year. <laughs> they may not individually be that significant. It's the pileup. So you need to take a look at that. You need to take a look at how you're coping. What are you, what are you doing? Are you, uh, uh, how's your sleep? Because sleep deprivation is a big deal. So that's number one. It has to be confidential. It has to be for the officer's benefit, not the department's benefit. Mm. Although the department will benefit in the long run by having more mentally stable and happy and, and um, hardy, mentally hardy officers. Number two, you've got to have culturally competent clinicians do this sort of work. So what do I mean by that? I mean culturally competent to work within the law enforcement culture, meaning they understand the culture. Mm -hmm. Because as somebody said in the New York Times the other day, culture eats policy for breakfast. Mm -hmm. I just love that statement. Culture is so, such a formative um, piece of an officer's life. It's the it's where stigma starts. It, it's where the uh, being a rugged individualist and they're thinking if you have to have help, it means you're weak. It does not mean that. It means you're human. Uh, it means so culture has to. People have to understand. Clinicians have to understand the culture. They have to understand issues of confidentiality. They have to understand why cops do what they do, and how they do it. They have to not mix up tasks of the job with personality traits like, uh, oh, you must have uh, taken a shot at that guy because you're aggressive. Mm. Well, that may not be the issue at all. And every now and then they're going to find somebody who shows up in their office for this annual mental health check who really is in serious trouble and probably should not be working until they get themselves back in a stable position, and the culturally competent clinician will know how to handle that in a safe, dignified, and respectful way um, so that the officer does not feel betrayed by the clinician. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you so much, which is there has to be trust. In order for there to be a yearly PTSD screening, it has to benefit the, the officer um, and not be something that the department could use for fit for duty. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the stigma comes from. It was for me last year when I went through what I went through, uh, I didn't publicly tell my department anything. Matter of fact, my department didn't even know anything until after I left my department. Um, they had no idea that I was under medication, that I was out on the street while I was on antidepressants. And it was because of the stigma. I was petrified that I was going to lose my job. Like, I was petrified they were going to take my gun and badge away, and that didn't sit right with me. Um, and um, that's, I think, where the stigma comes from, which is officers just like, you know, they're going to take my gun, they're going to take my badge, they're going to label me a, you know, a cuckoo, and I'm never going to get another job in law enforcement again. And I, mean, I think I think that's where the major major stigma happens. Um, and well, I was, that's part of it. I don't think it's the whole. I don't think it's the whole thing. It, part of it is what you're saying is that we teach officers to be catastrophic thinkers because mm -hmm. the things you just said were all in the all in that catastrophic mode and we tell you that you'll be safe if you can imagine the worst possible outcome of everything fine on the street does not work well in your personal life right that's one thing and then the other thing is that it that it's not just the department it is 
I'm going to use a phrase that's quite controversial. I'm not even sure I like the phrase myself, but I can't think of anything better uh, at the moment. It's the toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. That doesn't have anything to do with your administration. It's the definition of what it means, whether you're a male or a female, what it means to be tough enough to do this job. Right. It means you, have, you solve problems, you never have any, and if you do, you hide them. Mm. So it's it's not just the administration. Half the time, the administration wouldn't even know about it. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I I, I agree 100%. Um, we're used to fixing problems, not having problems. That's right. And it's somehow the, a shame that's attached to the fact that you are having you are having problems. I can't tell you how many workshops I do and talk to cops, and they'll come up afterwards and go and say, either to me or to my co-teacher, uh, you mean I'm not crazy? That's all I have is, is post-traumatic stress? <laughs> yeah, that's what we mean. Yeah. So, uh, so it's that sense of that of what we think it means to be a man, and of course, if you're a female officer, you're trying to fit into that same mold yourself. Yeah, and then some, and then some, because yeah, yeah, and female officers have to, um, you know, I, I've seen it. Uh, you know, they have to. They feel compelled to do twice as much work or be twice as tough because it's a male-dominated um, profession. Uh, That's right. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, for the next five years in law enforcement, what what are the things that you would like to see in the next five years in law enforcement profession? Okay. Well, uh, that's a big one. A bunch. <laughs> It's a bunch of things, but I'm going to refer to some of the stuff I've said in my in my blog. And one of them is that we uh, have to give more psychological support to officers because they're twice as likely to kill themselves as they are to be killed in the line of duty. We have to recognize how much the job traumatizes them. Um, I would like to see them undergo these uh, annual confidential, like we call them psychological wellness checks or mental floss or something like that. I'd like cops to be able to retire without financial penalty at 5, 10, or 15 years. Mm. I mean, you know how you see cops? I can remember a conversation I had with one. He was pulling out of the garage. He was just just out of FTO and said, or off probation and said, I love this job so much I could do it for free. Right? Yeah, I'm going to check with that officer about three years after that. They're going to be putting in an overtime slip for, for everything. 15 minutes yeah. of extra time they work. So some people, they, are, they ought to be able to go do something else. It prepare, being a cop prepares you to do a lot of other things, although I think cops have a terrible time figuring that out for themselves. But we ask them to do this job for way too long. And I understand how I get pushback from organizations when I suggest that because they're saying it's too expensive to hire and train officers that frequently. We're going to lose our seasoned cops. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of reasons people don't like to do this. But I I think they should. I'd like to see them consider it seriously and maybe more creatively than they've done. I think that in along with uh, basic training, I want to see that we train uh, academy level and then keep training uh, at intervals, cops on how to be, what does it mean to be resilient? How do you take care of yourself? What does it mean? What's emotional intelligence and how can you use that as a skill on the, uh, on the street? And I'd like to see more about um, 
de-escalation tactics, and then what we, you and I talked about a little earlier, I'd like to see lowering the emphasis on danger training without compromising officer safety. And yeah. some people think you can't do that. I'm not, I don't know, I, I think maybe, I'm hoping they're wrong. I'd like to see... We, I'd like to see us change that warrior mindset to that a guardian mindset. Mm -hmm. I know that can also be a slogan on the wall as well, but I'd like it to, to have some teeth in it, the idea about what is it that you're supposed to be doing as a cop. And I think that you're not supposed to be dealing with public health problems. And I would like to see other people get involved with things that, that like mental illness. I mean, I think, like, I forget what the statistic is. It's very high. 80% of your calls involve mentally ill people mm -hmm. or addicted people. So that, that's not a police problem. Uh, it can be. I mean, I know that. when we, If we have a group of social workers that are out there dealing with mental health people and a, a mentally ill person attacks one of the social workers, a cop is going to have to show up. I understand there's interface there, but... I really think we should. We're piling everything on the laps of police. Yeah. All these long-standing social ills. Um, and as I think I mentioned to you before, we need uh, more ways and different ways to measure productivity besides, you know, hash marks on your arrests. Um, it needs to be. We need to be able to uh, uh, award cops and acknowledge them for their crime prevention works and their community relations work in addition to arrest stats. Mm -hmm. And then finally, and this one got a, got a, some pushback from people who I think took it quite personally. We need more women as police officers. I'd agree. They are, they are less likely to get involved in physical confrontations and, uh, um, I wish we had more of them. It was only about 10% when I started in this field, Nick, about 40 years ago. Wow. Um, there was about 12%. Now we're, I think we're, we're down. And, of course, what you said about recruiting is going to be a challenge. Certainly will be a challenge for women in the future. Well, and I'll... So that was, yeah, yeah, that's and, it. That was my idea. Well, and I love all of them, but I will, I will touch on the female thing, which is... is the bigger problem is what we have in law enforcement is, is that we don't have female command staff elevating female officers. Mm -hmm. We find very much so that female command staff will be harder on female officers, almost to the point where they force them out of the agencies. And I don't know why that why that is. I, I've seen it and I've heard it from many, many agencies where Good female officers come to an agency and commanders that are females just crush them, crush their morale, um, criticize them way harder than a male officer. And I don't know whether or not it's just a I, I don't I don't know what it is, but I agree with you, which is, is we do need more uh, more female officers. Um, and um, I think a lot of it has to do with is that we don't they don't elevate each other like. I've watched it firsthand, and it's it's terrible. It's terrible. Um, but as a well, you know that maybe that's a geographical thing because I have a really different experience. Yeah, I think out it's out here in California, and it, at least you know my circle is like your circle is to the people we know. But I've seen just the opposite. Yeah, I wish they I wish they would come down here. I wish they would come down here, Doc. I mean, it, the the South is just, uh, I don't know what is going on down here. But, I mean, I came from New York City, so and then I moved to Virginia. And 
it's weird down here. <laughs> so well, the South, the South is different, and California is different. Oh, is you know, it? We're, oh. we're, we're uh, some people think we should secede from the nation because well, we're so different. Just so, be, yeah, just you be know, happy you're not. Yeah, just be happy you're not in Seattle, and, and you know. No, I'm not in Seattle. <laughs> yeah, just be I'm, happy. I'm right near San Francisco. Well, Doc, so uh, um, your book, uh, "I Love a Cop," is on its third, uh, its third revision, right? Third edition. It's, yeah, the third edition. Yeah. Okay, so folks can go on. Um, if you look at your radio right now, you'll you'll see where you can get uh, Dr. Ellen Kirchman's book. Uh, where can they get your blog? They can go to Psychology Today online and put my name in there, Ellen Kirschman, K-I-R-S-C-H-M-A-N. I think that's how they uh, can search for my blog. Or I haven't moved it. I, I tend to move my blog to my website. So people can also go to my website, but they should give me a few days be- or, or a week before I transfer the blog over there. Okay. Well, you know what? Uh I would love to have you on again uh, periodically. Uh, we can we can talk about some current event stuff. Um, again, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, be honest with you, 15 years ago, I would never think that I would be talking to you. So uh, for me, this has been a fantastic experience. And I think a lot of the officers that are out there um, need to hear this stuff. And if you do not have this book, I am telling you right now, go and get this book. Uh, So thank you so much for coming on the show. And um, we will talk to you soon. Uh, Folks, stay tuned. We're going to take a break and then we're going to wrap the show up. Law enforcement suicides are at an all-time high right now. One of the causes is poor leadership within the law enforcement profession. Nick, the host of the Roll Call Room podcast, has written a book, Police Mental Barricade, A Survivor's Guide to Poor Law Enforcement Leadership. This book is a raw and powerful look into suicide and how poor leadership decisions contribute to law enforcement suicides. Buy the book now at mentalhealthbarricade.com and stop the stigma.